And welcome to episode number three of the Big Tech Small Biz Podcast on the CGMRadio.com network, where we interview successful small business owners across the great state of Texas to find out how they won in business and in life outside the office. I am your host, Ryan Holland, along with co-host Justin Parks. Justin. Howdy. How's it going? Going well. I'm going excited well. to be here. You are excited you. to be here? Yeah, this is a neat... I like how you've redesigned the space and... It's got a lot of like. It's got a lot of energy. It's, it's got a feel to it, doesn't yeah, it? It does. You know, I got the American flag. I got a Texas thing. I've got, of course, Lord the, of the Rings. Lord of the Rings: Return of the King poster. I'm is, not sure how that ties as in, as well as a map of uh, Middle Earth. It, yeah. All things that are essential to any podcasting studio run by a guy who's a major dork. Yeah. So it's like it's like I was gonna say it's like it has a lot of energy in here, but it also has like a lot of quirkiness. Yes. So, like, I don't know if the, I think it's interesting that, like, the, to start the podcast, we have to turn off the air conditioning because it's too loud. It is because it's a window unit. Yeah, it's a window because unit. Because really, what we would hope people would think is that we're in like some big studio downtown or something like that. But you just gave away the fact that there's a window unit oh, essentially well, in here. And so people cool. don't have that perception anymore. I know, but I've been listening to podcasts where people record in their van. And this is they like do. a big upgrade. When are that. we going to do that? When are we going to record never. in our never. in a van? No, never. never. We are not. But you know what we are going to do, Justin? We are actually going to record a show today. And what I'm excited about is that with episode number three, now if you guys have listened to previous podcasts, episodes one and two, Justin and I basically started things off interviewing each other on our own small business journey. And today, though, we have a very special guest in the studio. Who do we have in the studio, Justin? Who's the mysterious guest uh, that is roll, in drum here? Roll. Drum roll. Of course. It's they... Kristen Welsh from Mercy House Global, and we are so ecstatic to have her in. Um, I can't wait to ask her a bunch of questions and find out about her story, and uh, I think the listeners are really going to be in for a, a really inspirational episode. No question. So, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Kristen is the founder of Mercy House Global. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, check it out. It is an amazing It's a business and it's a ministry in, in a very unique way. Way And I know as Christians, we all want to use our businesses for the purpose of ministry and that kind of thing. But one of the reasons we are excited about having Kristen on as our very first guest is because it really, it's fascinating because the way it's set up, it's actually a, uh, it's really kind of like, almost feels like half and half, or it's like all business and all ministry in some unique way. So we're going to get into that, but I want to actually read the Mercy House Global mission statement, and then we'll get into how Kristen, uh, kind of the journey the, yeah. to, to Mercy, Mercy House. So Mercy House Global exists to engage, empower, and disciple women around the globe in Jesus' name. Engage those with resources to say yes to the plight of women in poverty. Empower women and teenage mothers around the world through partnerships and sustainable fair trade product development. Disciple women to be lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. So that is a powerful, beautiful, purposeful 
mission statement down to those who are in, in the greatest need, but it is also a business. So I'm excited to, excited to get into that. Yep, I'm excited too because I'm fascinated by, uh, I'm in, I'm fascinated by this breaking of the mold, because I think as we in Christian culture, it's like you have to either be a nonprofit or you have to have a business with Christian flavor. And I love that that you guys have you're doing both because I think that's I think it's a wave of the future that people are going to have to find a way mm-hmm. to you know it's there's things that are more effective as a business and there's things that are more effective as a, as a ministry. Definitely. It's part of, I think you have to change with trends and culture mm-hmm. and um, really get outside the church and yeah. the box and meet people where they are. And that's what we try to do. It wasn't always, um, I feel like we sort of stumbled into this life. Right. Um, but here we are. And we're learning how to have a successful business and an obedient ministry where we bring in as many people as possible to impact as many people as possible. I love that. That could be a mission statement for lots of other people. The mm-hmm. way you just said that was was perfect. Uh, can you say that again? It was a, a, a obedient, what, say it again? An, an obedient um, ministry. Um, in a successful business. In a successful business. Yeah, yeah that's those, fantastic. Those That coupling is challenging for sure because as a nonprofit, um, all of a nonprofit doesn't mean you don't make a profit. It just means you reinvest that profit into your purpose. And so um, we're in the public square, though, especially competing with um, other product-driven businesses. And mm. so we have to treat it like a business. But our purpose, we have to maintain that purpose of really obedient ministry. Okay, so before we get into the current state of affairs, Let's go back a little bit in time. Let's go back to Kristen Welsh as you, well. You weren't Kristen Welsh back then, but let's go back to when you were a kid. Like, what kind of ki- kid were you in class? Um, I was an overachiever. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Strength Finders. It's a resource I highly recommend. I didn't know then what my strengths were, but knowing what they are now, it helps me understand even the kind of kid I was. But definitely a rule follower. Um, very. Uh, black and white, justice-oriented, um, perfectionist, um, something that I think is kind of comical now, um, especially now that I have high school kids and college kids, but I wore a rhinestone Jesus pin, hmm. like a brooch pin every day of high school. Um, so T-shirts, dresses, whatever I wore, I pinned on this, the name of Jesus on my clothes. I was an, I've always been an introvert, kind of shy, Um, but I was really compelled to let people know that I was different and, Mm -hmm. um, and that was a way that I could sort of say that without having to say it. Um, which is interesting (laughs) because so many, so many kids are just focused on fitting in Yeah, and you were very purposeful about standing out. Yeah. Yeah. Which really looking back, um, I'm shocked that I did that because it, brought a lot of negative attention in a way. Hmm. Um, like my senior year of high school, I was actually in theater, um, and I won an award called the Rhinestone Jesus Award. And really my classmates were mocking me. Oh, okay. But I was so proud that they noticed that I was different. And um, and I guess I, I was just compelled. I had a burden for my classmates and the lost and... Mm-hmm. Um, 
but not knowing how to reach them, this seemed like a, I guess, a safe way to, um, to share my testimony yeah. and my, how I my, was different. My mind is going to that not only were you like kind of showing your classmates like I am sold out for Jesus, but it's almost like I think God looks for things like that. Like there's a verse in the Bible that talks about how God is looking throughout the earth for people whose hearts are toward him. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like I had this picture of like God is like noticing you in your high school as one of the only people that's kind of being a light for him. And I can't help but think that he's like, okay, I'm going to put her to work. Mm. I'm going to, I'm going to give her many more opportunities to be, you know, a a light on a hill. Yeah. I remember there were many days I would wake up and I didn't want to put that on. Mm. And so it was almost like a, I wanted to make myself take a stand, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And later, many years later, I wrote a book called Rhinestone Jesus um, about saying yes to God when your sparkly, safe faith is no longer enough. And on the cover of that book, it has that rhinestone Jesus pen that sort of, there's a few rhinestones missing. It's a little Was it the actual one that you wore? Oh my gosh, that's cool. (laughs) It was really cool. Um, but just as a, because all through school and, and just life up until probably I was 35 years old, I was a very, um, I was, I was a Christian that was full of faith. You know, I did all the things that a Christian does, you know, go to church, wear your Christian t-shirts, do Bethmore Bible studies, but I hadn't done a lot of, um, obedience in the sense of action to my faith. Mm. I hadn't taken a lot of steps outside of my comfort zone. Good wife, good mom, good Christian, but it was all about me, my family and myself, you know, my, my world. Yeah. And so, um, that really changed um, in 2010. Um, as a, I was a blogger, uh, started blogging in about 2008, and um, had this successful mom blog. And I was invited to Kenya um, by Compassion International, which is the world's largest child sponsorship program. Kristen, we're going to leave them hanging because we're we're getting. Uh, I want to talk about how you more so how you got up to that point. Okay. Especially when it comes to the uh, just different jobs. You said you were an over overachiever. Mm-hmm. You're a perfectionist. You you love working hard. Uh, I listened to podcast number ten last night uh, where uh, you were talking about uh, overwork is uh, unbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, uh, so by the way, Kristen actually has a great podcast of her own called Moving Mountains, so check that out. We'll link to that <coughs> Excuse me, in the show notes as well. Uh, but what, what kind of jobs were you interested in as an overachiever, a hard worker? What mm-hmm. kind of jobs did you seek, pursue? What kind of jobs yeah. did you have kind of growing up and even into your college days um, like, what did you do for one? And two, what within that did, did you feel like prepared you for what, what you're doing now? That's a great question. I, I believe as a Christian that God uses everything. And sometimes it feels like we're in a desert or in a season that isn't purposeful or meaningful, but I feel like he uses all of it. And so sure. I can look back now and see that he was preparing me for what he was going to ask me to do. Um, I, my very first job was at a Hallmark card store. Um, 
doing displays and so retail. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and I loved it world. because I love words and writing, um, and so I love school supplies and greeting cards and there's wow. something about Did that. Did you just say you love school supplies? I do. Yes. <laughs> and a fresh that. notebook with a good pen. Yeah, the smell of that. I, I, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Okay. I, I see. I, I, I see. love writing. So when I was um, in junior high, trying to find my, I guess, my place, what I was good at, because I was in sports, I was in theater. Um, but as I was going into high school, you know, you kind of have to narrow down. Yeah. Um, and I had a teacher who, in front of the class, read something that I wrote and said, have you ever thought about being a writer? You're a good writer. And she planted this seed in me. And so as when I was picking classes for high school, I chose journalism and ended up becoming um, a part of a newspaper staff. And by the time I was a senior, I was editor of the school paper. Now, th th that is incredible. So Kristen, would you mind just kind of speaking to the audience? Because I think people need to, to, we need to unpack that a little bit because there's a, I think there's a powerful life lesson yeah. there, not just for us as the beneficiaries, mm -hmm. but us as kind of the conduits in, in a lot of ways of really changing people's life for the better through our words. Mm -hmm. So how would you, cause I know you're, uh, you know, you are a, a teacher and a, you, uh, uh, a preacher in, in your own right. So how would you like encourage uh, our listeners in terms of using their words to bless others in that way? Well, I'm a living proof that words um, are seeds. And I think when we sow them and toss them out and they have love and purpose behind them, they, they're watered and they grow into something. And so I would say to everyone listening that, you know, if whether it's your own children or um, kids that you have influence over through theater or um, at church and Sunday school or whatever it is, and not just kids, but our coworkers mm -hmm. and our, our friends and our family, the power of words. I mean, even the Bible talks about um, the power of the tongue and how we can speak death and life. And I think when we take the opportunity to when we see something in someone, we say it out loud yeah. and we're sowing good seeds in them. Amen. And that eighth grade teacher, her name was Mrs. Abernathy. And it was, um, she had said that to me earlier in the year. And so I just, everything became about writing. Like, mm. I, you know, it was something that I, because I already loved words and she spoke this into me. And I remember at the end of the school year, they would give out awards at the end of junior high and they had an oratory award and I, no one had won it for the past few years. And so I went to her and I asked her, how do I win this? <laughs> like, I want to be that person. Yeah. You're the overachiever, yes. right? Like, I don't want to just be the rhinestone winner. I want to win an actual yes. award. And so, I mean, she, I think she just liked the initiative and the dreaming. And, yeah. and so she sort of just spoke into me and then said, you know, encouraged me in high school to get into theater and get into um you know, journalism. And that's exactly what I did. And so I see that with my own kids, um, speaking into them. And I think we, we can see things that they can't see and we yeah. were further down the road. And, um, my two older kids are very compassionate and, um, they really want to see people 
meet their full potential, their mm-hmm. friends. And, and so speaking in that into them, and I actually gave them the strengths finders test, yeah. which really only reiterated what I was already speaking into them. And I, so I wonder, I wonder a little bit if the, the sense of this generation not having a, a purpose or not having a lot of them don't have purpose is this a lacking of, of speaking life into them mm-hmm. just from, not just from parents to, to, to children, but teachers to children and other leaders in their life. Um, yeah. All three of us at this table had somebody and an, another adult other than our parent speak into us and say, Hey, I think the Lord want me to let you know that, you know, you're a great writer or, for Ryan, it was the, the teacher said you have a radio voice. Yeah, when I was a senior in high school, I read something. I don't remember. I either read something out loud or answered a question, and my teacher looked at the class and she was like, "Doesn't he have a yeah. radio voice?" And I had never thought mm-hmm. about doing radio, but at that point, mm. it was like kind of everything changed in a way, and I actually ended up doing a Christian apologetics radio show for five weeks in college. So I became a believer yeah. uh, my freshman year in college. And I haven't done anything really between now and then, uh, but it's always been there. And, I, and it was something that I felt like, and I hope that the Lord mm-hmm. would use at some point yeah. in the future. But yeah, it was an adult other than a parent speaking truth, not just making something up to make you feel good, but you know, actually speaking yeah. something right. that's real in somebody that has potential. And it's just amazing it's to- absolutely it's amazing. So, it's such a small amount of time, but when it, it comes with intention, and you, like this happened to me when I was 12 years old. I did I went to, away to camp, and our cabin had to do a skit for the rest of the ca- for the rest of the camp, and and uh, I was one of the I played the, a role in the show, and and the next day one of the counselors I didn't really know very well, but he came up to me and said, "I think the Lord is going to use you for drama," and that was a turning point in my life because I started pursuing theater. I started like getting more serious about it. Justin, like, you, you've been holding out on me, bro. You never yeah. did you. You've never told me that well, story. Yeah. I mean, well, now I know. When, when Kristen, along with the rest story, of the I'm world, like, okay. There's a there's like a there's like a common thread here, which is that I think that Amen. I think we need to be speaking into the lives of of young people around us. Um, you know, their parents are going to speak into them too. But there's something powerful that happens when it comes from like another adult, mm-hmm. and I think. I think there's a lot of power there. Yeah. And when it comes to career and calling, so it's like that became my not only my career, but it became my calling. Mm-hmm. Writing became your career and your calling. Right. Ryan is now, you know, going for it with, with the radio and and he's very gifted at it. And mm-hmm. so it's it's I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> well no, you're 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 very good at it. So it's like I feel like that that one of the takeaways from this episode could be you know, to free people up mm-hmm. to just kind of speak into other people's lives in a yeah. In a meaningful and, way. And it's a lot of fun, too. It's a lot of fun when you hit, when, when the arrow hits that mark and you see something, yeah. especially someone is, um, I don't know, maybe they are just uh, self conscious about it or unaware of it, and you hit that mark and you see yeah. them light up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of confirmation, I think, that, that happens when, especially when it's not family. Um, and I think there's, um, you're just helping dreams um, take root. Mm. And and who knows what God is going to do with that. I had no idea that writing would become a business for me or a job. I mean, up until I, w- I was in my 30s, still writing, but no one was necessarily reading what I was writing. Mm. And I remember I wouldn't call myself a writer um, because I wasn't getting paid to do it. And I had someone even speak into me, you know, a writer writes and, Mm. you know, an artist paints and you don't have to have 
you know, necessarily receive money to be. Kristen, I can absolutely relate to that because I am a rapper. (laughs) I don't have to be paid. Nobody has to listen to anything. I'm a rapper. And it's because that's I rap. And that's yeah. what I do. So I won't do it here for everybody. So I'm sorry to disappoint everyone. Her writing is the same thing as you. You don't think so? No. I bet I your rapping is more six... entertaining than my writing. Oh, that might be. Well, well uh, my rapping's very entertaining, but it'd be yeah. hard to, to match we or that family. Can you give us a sample just real quick? Just real. It's no. Necessary. Okay. <laughs> so you're really not a rapper. Uh, but, but a rapper can go right into but, it. But speaking of writing that we know people now read, what is the, uh, uh, where do people find your writing? Where do you write most? Um, I, I've been blogging for 11 or 12 years now. And so I still, at least twice a week, uh, write on my blog, wearethatfamily.com. It's sort of a place where uh, moms, uh, parents, uh, people who want to change the world, I guess, have community. And a long time ago when I started that blog, I just wanted people to leave with something. I wanted to give them something so that when they left that page, they were inspired, they were challenged, they were encouraged, motivated. And so um, it's taken a lot of different forms over the last dozen years, but that's still where most of my writing is. Um, In 2010, I wrote my first book, and I just completed my fifth book. And so you can wow. find those at Amazon or wherever so. Just books look are up sold. look up Kristen Welch, and they can find your books. Yes. Are your books listed anywhere on wearethatfamily.com? Yes. Okay, so they can find them yes. there as well. So, uh, in, were there any other jobs that you had, you know, before Mercy House Global, uh, that you felt like really kind of impacted what what you're doing now, or just really just changed you? as a person through your experience there, what else kind of in the journey up to Mercy House um, really affected you, you feel like? Well, I sold sandwiches once out of the back of my car, but that, wow. okay, now that's <laughs> that interesting. was a short. That's um, random. Um, I cleaned a church, uh, but what I did for most of the time out of college, I taught school for one year, oh, wow. um, first grade. That, that was, there was a reason it was only one year. Yeah. <laughs> I did, I was hard. I, I didn't love that. Um, but I was a children's pastor for about 10 years. And, um, wow. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. My husband was a youth pastor. I was a children's pastor and I loved it. I loved, um, teaching and being around kids. And I don't really tell anyone that now if I, you know, if I go to church, I don't want to be lured back into that. But, um, I, it was an outlet for writing too. I wrote a lot of curriculum, um, puppet shows back mm. then, um, skits for our youth to go to national um, oh, competitions. Wow. And so uh, I got to use a lot of different skill sets. I mean, Maybe it, we should be recruiting you for the theater <laughs> program. Would you say no to that? Um, it would <laughs> depend on what it is. You're pretty busy. <laughs> so, okay, so I wanted to ask also, when you were talking about the blogging, I, th- I think this is an important point too, which is... Um, I'm a firm believer that you you do what you're gifted to do and the money comes later. Like Definitely. you keep writing and it's not about monetizing right away. It's you keep acting and learning about theater and it's not about making money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, obviously God knows our needs. So, and he's given us these desires and these gifts and he has a plan. And so I, I, I mean, can you talk about the journey from like just almost like amateur writing to 
like starting to get paid and mm-hmm. actually make a real living off of it. So yeah. I think that's applicable to any field that people go into. It is. And it's really, there's a fine line that sometimes you don't even know you're crossing between being an amateur and a professional, especially in writing, um, because it's all about discipline. Hmm. It's about consistency and doing what you're supposed to do. And so um, for me, it became about I'm a ri- I want to be a writer, so I'm going to write, even if no one reads it. Right. And so carving out the time, and I'm a mom of three kids and a wife and, you know, have all the duties and responsibilities that come with that. And my first book was written at Chick-fil-A with my kids playing in the play area and I had headphones on to tune out all the noise and I would write in hour increments. Mm. And thankfully that has changed, but it's just the discipline and not letting your circumstances or your situation stop you from pursuing your dreams because life is going to do that. You know, there's always going to be a reason not to say yes to God. There's always going to be a reason not to pursue something that is bigger than you are, but the discipline and just being faithful right. to your dream, it's going to take you place. And most people don't accomplish their dreams because they stop dreaming because so, that life gets in the way. So, so you do the discipline, which is, is the um, most important thing is to be persistent in doing good and not, you know, not get weary of doing good. So, but where was the tipping point? for the blog and where was the tipping point for, cause I know one of your books went like New York times bestseller. So what were the t- tipping points for the blog and for the, for the, the writing? Well, I call it our sweet spot. It's the place where our skill, our passion and God's timing collide. And so I was refining my skill for years and years and years before anyone ever read what I wrote. I developed this discipline of, through journaling or it, it, it eventually became blogging that no matter what happens, I'm going to follow through on this discipline. And so that was my skill that I refined. I went to writers workshops, conferences. I was in critique groups, um, anything that I could get my hands on. And so I was developing this skill and my passion was motherhood because it took me a long time to become a mom and I loved that journey, but it was also very isolating because I stopped working to stay home with my kids. And so those were my two things, my passion and my skill. Um, and I was able to write to mom. So I was Mm -hmm. combining those two, but God's timing was really that third leg that changed everything. Okay. So what was that? What was that moment? Uh, That moment was for me. And I, I think it's different for everyone because we can't predict God's timing, but I, I found my niche in blogging and I immediately saw success and I had hundreds of thousands of readers reading. So right away you had, well, I I worked it like a job. Okay. So I did everything. I mean, my husband actually brought home a book called blogging for dummies, the yellow and black book. You know, when I first started, um, just attempting to, and really blogging for me was sort of a rebellious act because I was like, I can't get published for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Really my story hadn't started yet. The story that I was supposed to tell hadn't started yet, but I didn't know that. And so I started blogging because I was like, I just can publish myself. Like there's this great new thing. And blogging 12 years ago was, especially for moms, it was a new platform. And so 
I decided to publish myself. Well, I had the skill, I had the passion, which was really meeting moms where they were at, you know, doing dishes and diapers and wiping up everything, right. chins, butts, but how did counters. You, I want to know how did you market it? How do because you, you said, oh, how did you market it? <laughs> how did, like that's I, like the nuts and bolts are interesting to me too. I, I worked it like a job. So I, everything that I could get my hands on to learn about blogging, I did. I would leave a hundred comments a day on other people's okay, blogs. Okay, so that's the key is engaging with I, other bloggers. I worked it like a job. So my kids would go to preschool, and I would, and I was not making any money. Right. But I wanted to be at the top of this world, which there's the danger there. I, I, based on my enneagram and my strength finders, I have the tendency to be a workaholic. I love work. I love achieving. Um, I love solving problems. That's my top strength, love solving problems. So I'm in this new place in my life, and I love it. I love the um, the effect that it's having, that I'm earning page views and it's growing. But the, the risk and the danger that I really succumbed to was it became all about me. Mm. And... I got sucked into this being known mentality. It's very, it's a hard, you know, especially if you're in a social media driven business, it's all about numbers and it's about being known. Mm. And so the more known I became really the emptier I felt. I just really, um, because I, I think as Christians, we're supposed to make Jesus known and you can't make yourself known while you're trying to make Jesus known. It's one or the other. And so I was seeing success, but the more success I had, the more I wanted to be known. I, it wasn't enough. And I created this appetite. I just wanted more and more and more. So did Grateful Kids in Entitled World, that's your biggest book, right? Mm-hmm. That's the one you sold the most copies. Was that pre-Mersey House or no, post? No, it was post. Post, okay. Really all of my, I, I had signed my first book contract for a devotion for moms about two months before I went on that trip with Compassion in 2010 that trip, and I was already writing that book, it literally changed my life, everything. And so I came home, and everything I've written since for the last 10 years has been has flown out of this life change of really being wrecked. It reestablished my priorities. And it's amazing that I really became, I think, in God's eyes, more successful after I started walking in obedience, even though number-wise, it might not look that way in blogging because I had to... Maybe There's not a in blogging, but you sold more. I mean, you sold a lot of books. Right? Yes. So there was also like, uh, like I don't know. There was definitely for obedience. I think so. Right. I think so. That w- that book was the hardest book I've ever written. Um, there are I've written some books since that I loved more, and they haven't been as successful. But again, it was it's still about obedience for me, because I feel like God is going to do what He's going to do. We offer him our loaves and fishes. It's about us offering what we have. And then he multiplies it times a billion, or he doesn't. But it's still that act of obedience. I mean, he could have taken that little boy's lunch and said, thank you, and then done a completely different miracle. That little boy still offered what he offered, and he was blessed. And so I think it's really dangerous when it comes to business to you know how we define success because there's a definition for a successful business but there's a definition for a su- successful life 
and they're pretty different definitions. Yes, you can be have an extremely successful business. But be and, miserable. And be a complete <laughs> atheist and have yes. want nothing to do with God and even and even yeah. hate him. And so I, I think a lot of time we can we confuse yes. success in business with God's blessing. Definitely. And that is not necessarily the case. Sometimes yes that is the case, but it's sometimes it's because you just worked your tail off mm-hmm. and you didn't acknowledge God at all and you just you knew what to do to become successful and so you did. Yeah. Um but when we I, I think it's more of a sign of God's blessing when we step out when he calls us to something and we step out in obedience and we do what what he says and and then success comes. We still have to work hard. We still have to do our part. Uh, but then success comes as we follow God in obedience. And so so thinking of that, so how did how did you know um, that you needed to start Mercy House Global. Like, what was what was that period of time where you transitioned from uh, uh, only blogging mm-hmm. and being a writer to actually putting together a pretty amazing kind of business ministry uh, mm-hmm. combination? Well, it was definitely a pivotal um, time for me. I think I was gaining momentum and really. Um, rising to the top of that world, the Christian mom blog world at the time. And, um, and it was, it was good, but it was not enough and not in the sense of money or numbers, or I honestly don't have that much of a business head. Um, I never monetized my blog to the capacity that I could have. Um, and you know, so it wasn't necessarily about money for me. I think any business that or any yes to God that we say, it's it really comes down to taking that step. And then if it fails miserably or it's a huge success, which is really the crossroads I was at with starting Mercy House, um, it's not up to us. I mean, we do the work. We put all the time in and the effort, but I feel like, especially when it's motivated by God and we're walking in obedience, success and failure, they look totally different in God's economy. And so what might be a miserable failure, if right. it was done out of obedience, God can redeem that in the future and use it in a way that brings worldly success or spiritual success. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes he might want us to go through Definitely. that. Definitely. I mean, you go look at all that the... failure because of what we learn. Yes. I love it. the stories about all these great inventors and and passionate people who've won Nobel prizes and all the different things and they you read their failures first. But they didn't quit. Lots of them. Yes. Typically. I remember John Grisham, the author, you know, The Firm, The yes. Pelican. I mean, he was literally selling uh, his first book I forget the name of it, out of the back of his mm-hmm. truck. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, publisher after publisher after publisher said no. What, the, the Harry Potter publisher? What, yeah. I mean, did, she, wasn't she ret- uh, turned down like, I don't know, yeah. 80 times or something? I mean, you know, you imagine being that literary agent. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you were one of the people like, nah, this isn't going to be any yes, good. You yes. know, have a nice day. Uh, uh, pa- painful. But, um, but, but yeah, sometimes, I mean, God 
wants us to go through those failures because even in some ways we're going to be even more successful mm-hmm. on, on the other and which and, and yeah. again success does not equal money right but ultimately success when we look at what the scripture says that God has saved us he's chosen us to be conformed to the image of Christ and I think it's very easy that we lose sight of we think God saves us so we can go to heaven mm-hmm. and while that is a unbelievable benefit of salvation when you look at the scripture the focus is on knowing God and becoming like Jesus Christ, being formed into his, his likeness. Of course, as we do that, we come to know God, know God more than more. So, um, but yeah, uh, uh, it, uh, it ultimately is, you know, it's about, you know, God's will, what he wants us to go through mm-hmm. to become who he wants us to be. And then uh, in terms of the, the material success, as long as we're walking in what he wants us to do, he will, he will take care of that, no yes. question. Yes, so that was really my frame of mind. Um, when I had like a list of, at the time of things in my mind that if I could achieve these, I would be successful. A book deal, um, certain, you know, hitting a million page views on a viral post. I mean, I had these, this criteria, goals that I had set for myself. And one of those goals was to be invited on a trip with Compassion International because, but it was for total selfish reasons, totally selfish because I had, they had done three or four trips at this time and I had seen that big bloggers had been invited on these trips. And so that immediately became, well, I want that invitation too. Um, so that was on my list, but when that call came, I think I realized exactly (laughs) what I would be saying yes to. So I actually said no right off the bat, um, to go on this trip to basically a third world, spend nearly three weeks blogging about poverty. Um, so I, initially they called, I said, no, that night I was sharing this with my husband, like, guess what? And it was really more of like, I, I can check this off my list because it was just about being asked, yes, not actually going. it was about going. being asked, yeah. which is so, I think it's, that's a true look into maybe who I was as a person. So really, I mean, really superficial in the sense of um, I wanted to be known. And, and in trade, I was not making God known. Mm. And because of that, I was really struggling with emptiness and lack of purpose. So that's sort of who I was and where I was at. So that night I told my husband, and he was horrified that I said, said no. no. <laughs> he was like, first of all, free trip to Africa. And there's something to that. I yeah. mean, there's something. I mean, to there is. There. Something I didn't there. have a passport. I can, imagine, I can imagine his voice right now. Yeah. Like. <laughs> he was just like, this is such an opportunity. Um, and I think, I mean, God uses our spouses um, to speak truth to us if we'll listen. That he and does. <laughs> yeah, Terrell's very, he has a very calm tone. He does. He's very know. calm. He's very level-headed. And um, he, and he's my best friend. And so he spoke to, really, he was like, honey, I think you got this one wrong. Hmm. And he said, why don't you want to go? Why, you know, and I had all these excuses. I have a two year old, you know, I had, I mean, it's, it is a big thing to consider, but at the, when we just peeled back all the excuses, I actually said, I'm afraid it's going to change my life. Hmm. And he said, Maybe it should. Yeah, that's why I will not yeah. go on any of those trips. <laughs> I mean, personally, you know, of course, I'm 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 a pretty big deal 
And so I've been invited, but I'm just like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I yeah. don't need any more sanctification. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. nobody knows about me. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> when but, you were talking about being like being the the need to be asked, that's one of the things I've been kind of wrestling with and thinking about is like this need that we as Christians have to be asked it's to do pride, things. Really, right? I mean, really, what you're talking about? Is it pride. is pride, but the Lord has called us to bigger things than waiting to be asked. He wants us mm-hmm. to be the askers. Mm-hmm. Like he, he wanted them to become fishers of men. That means they're out there right. asking and they're the ones creating opportunities in there. Yeah. So like as an entrepreneur and as a Christian, I have to get out of my waiting to be asked mentality mm-hmm. and get into, mm-hmm. no, you're not going to be asked. You need to be doing the asking because there's other people out there that are being, that are being or waiting to be asked. Yes. They're being waiting Which to is be exactly, told the gospel. <laughs> th- that is exactly where God led me to this place of he asked me a question and I answered it with my life. And mm. but I couldn't do it alone. And so I get to ask armies of people to join me. Yeah. And I don't receive the glory because I'm not doing it on my own you know, God's receiving the glory. That's right. And so I ended up calling back, saying yes to that trip. Um, and really, I think it was a it was an important moment in my life because I was vulnerable enough to say, I'm afraid it's going to change my life. And my husband was bold enough to say, your life needs to be changed. This emptiness in you, mm. this, you know, I would drop my kids off at school and if I wasn't blogging, I was shopping and Mm -hmm. I was really like, I felt entitled to the American dream. Like we deserve this. We're good people. We should have what everyone else has. And I wanted bigger, everything, everything. And the area we live in, in, in Texas is like the worst. Yes. I mean, it is. It's It's a bubble. It's insane Mm -hmm. how much materialism is all around us. And it's, it's very easy to get caught in the trap. And I was totally trapped. And so Long story short, I said yes. I went on that trip. I came face to face with the world's normal and saw that my normal was nothing like what other people were experiencing every day. And it changed, the world's normal changed my normal. And I had this very um, spiritual moment in a slum in Kenya where, you know, I woke up in this slum physically and spiritually and emotionally and every part of me came alive because I realized that all of the human suffering and that I was witnessing and the poverty and it was just very hard to even describe every sense was being attacked and uh, was alive with um, smells and sights and I was learning new vocabulary words like orphan-led homes and survival prostitution and just you know the world's normal just shocked me. It wrecked me. Well, what were some of the, like, in terms of sights, in terms of what you saw there in, in the slums? Uh, most of us, most of our listeners, most of us just have never Yeah, like, what stands been, out the most? Like, what, what stands, stands out the most? when you're in a slum yeah. and you're looking around? Well, a slum is defined by a very small geographic area, so imagine a mile radius, but very densely populated. So I was in the world's largest slum. At the time, it wasn't the world's largest. It was second or third, but today it is. And there are people living on top of each other. I mean, over a million people in a one-mile radius. So that is just bad. It is. It's hard to even describe or imagine. So and it wasn't one site that you saw, like a, a little girl. Oh no, no. It's well, like the whole sum total was just. It was the sum total, and it was there were people who had lived in that slum 
for 50 years. The life expectancy was less than 60. Lived there their entire life and never left it because they didn't have transportation. They didn't have money. So their entire world was this area, this one mile. And so they went to school. If they went to church, they, you know, everything was, they walked to the market. And so that's even hard to imagine that they didn't even know there was anything outside of that. Mm. And there was, you know, it's hard to describe, but basically lack of, of humanity humanity i actually wrote my job that those three weeks were to write blog posts like we would come back and after they would show us something and then we would share it and the day that i went to slum i titled that blog post today i went to hell and that's that's the only way it was the most oppressive dark um there were girls prostituting not for money but for food which was mind-boggling to me you know, girls the age of my daughters at the time. Um, I met a, a boy named Vincent who was an orphan who was leading his home, So, which means there were no parents. The parents had died. He was 14 and was in charge of his brothers. And his house was the size of my closet at home. And we were in his home, and he showed us um, how he um, did homework by the light of one candle he lit the candle, dripped the wax onto the table, and then stuck the candle into the wax, and that was his light. And we'd we get have up, no excuses. Yes. <laughs> we'd None get up at 3 a.m. to go buy food at the market to sell it from 5 to 7 for money, and that was his job, and then walk his brothers to school and then become a student all day long. And he was living on less than a dollar a day. And I mean, this was normal. This was just an average kid, nothing special about him. And what changed my life was I was standing in his home and he was proud to show us. He had these Americans in his home and he's giving us this tour and there's water dripping on our head. It was raining. There's holes in the roof and his smile lit up the room. I mean, that was so this very dark place, but his smile literally beautiful white teeth, you know, just so conflicting. Why, how can he be so happy? And so he asked at the end of his little tour, does anyone have any questions? And I'm the American with the rhinestone Jesus pen. I raise my hand and I'm like, Vincent, how can you be so happy? You have nothing. Those are the words I said to him because I was looking at the lack of what he had. And he looked at me with pity and he said, ma'am, I have Jesus. Mm. I have everything. And I realized I had Jesus too. I'd had him my whole life, but he wasn't enough for me. Jesus was not enough for me. And so that changed everything because I wanted to make him enough. I wanted him to be the central point of my life. I wanted to make him known and not myself known. But you had a, but you had a honest conversation with God. Was it after this trip was over? Wasn't there a moment where you said like it was really that same day? Okay, that same day. So we left his house, and we were standing on a hill, and the the ground of a slum is comprised of the worst things you can imagine. So there's no bathrooms. They call them flying toilets when someone has to use the bathroom. They put their waste in a plastic bag, tie it in a knot, swing it around their head, and wherever it lands, that's your bathroom. Hmm. 
And so the ground is just polluted with feces and there were um, aborted babies. Oh my I mean, gosh. It, it was just the most disgusting, vile, trash, um, you know, years and years and years of waste piled. Like the, if you carved out the earth and there were places where you could see that it was just layers of filth and that was to- so you their really toxic were in ground. Like you really were in the closest thing to hell. I it mean, felt like, yeah, and it was just so, and, and there's a there's a spiritual oppression that's hard to describe because a lot of slums are very dangerous. We had armed bodyguards with us. They're ruled by gangs. They're violent. One of the biggest jobs is making... And a lot of men make alcohol that they sell, and one of the ingredients is jet fuel. Oh my gosh! I mean, so they're drinking this poison and selling it, and there's pornography shacks where there there's no electricity, so there's running extension cords down into a slum so that they're. I mean, just yeah. hell. I mean, literally, that's yeah. what it felt like. And of course, there's beauty everywhere, and there were beautiful people, and there was hope, and there. But I was just my first experience was mind-boggling. I mean, it blew apart everything I thought about God and myself. And I was standing on the ground that day, kind of like a hill, and I had boots on, like rain boots. And I remember looking down at my boots thinking, it's raining, and there were these big splashes on my boots. And I was crying and didn't even know I was crying. You know, it was just like every sense imaginable. They told us to wear scarves to cover our noses. I mean, it was just the smells, everything. And I was overwhelmed more than I've ever been in my life with anger, just furious at God. Mm. I was so mad that I felt like this had been kept a secret from me. Of course, I'd stuck my head in the sand for a long time. I didn't want to know what I didn't know. Who, I mean, you know, that's part of our the joyful bliss of ignorance. And there have been many days since I wish I didn't know what I know. Understandable. Because there's a... Yeah. a responsibility and a reaction to what you know. And so I remember just standing there completely overwhelmed and angry. And I, my fists were clenched and I asked God how he could allow so much human suffering that, you know, like all the Bible verses and Jesus loves little children, the songs, all the head knowledge of the faith that I had was running through my head and it did not make sense it was hard to reconcile what I was seeing, the, the unfairness, the sovereignty of God that allows some of us to be, nor- be born in North America into wealth and privilege and opportunity, and some are born into this. They didn't choose. You know, you're, right. you, you're born Nobody into this. That. You don't choose that. So the, so the listeners are in suspense right now because everybody has faced or is facing that question, which is why does God allow things like this? Yeah. To happen, and you asked them that question. I asked him that question, and immediately, one of the very few times I felt like God, I heard his voice, and he said to me, how can you allow it? Yeah. What are you going to do about what you're seeing? Because we are the answer. Right. As the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth, we get to be the disciples and the missionaries and the people who bring change. And what I didn't know then, and I know now, is that the joy and purpose that I lacked, I found through generosity, sharing what I've been given, whether it was time, resources, talent, 
the abundance in my life. And so I came home and that's what I wanted to do. How do I share what I've been given? And so I think we all have these moments that are, that define us. It could be at the bed of a sick child, at the loss of a spouse, a job, a financial crisis. You know, you have these like earth shattering moments where we get to respond. And I had had some of those moments in my life without a doubt. I had a premature baby at one point. I had a difficulty in my marriage. You know, there have been times in my life, but my response had always been the same. And that was to just keep living the same life I'd always lived. Which really, you know, if you live the same life every year that you've always lived, can we really call it a life? And I, that was really where I was at. And I was determined when I returned home, I would not be the same person. I wanted to, I wanted my response to be different. And so what was your first, what was your first tangible step of obedience? Because when you encounter something like, like this and you, and you feel like God's asking you to, you know, take a big step and make a difference and, and, you know, what are you going to do about it? I mean, it always starts with like a few steps of simple obedience. Mm -hmm. So what were those first couple steps? What were the things that stood out as you went on this, this journey? What were the first couple things you did? I didn't know what to do. And I think that's where a lot of people end up. What do you do? And I couldn't do nothing. Well, it seems helpless. Like how how can anything that I do make any difference in this impossible? Really, when we look at it, we think impossible. Yeah, it is. And I think you have to remember that for the one person you help, it becomes possible. And so you have to bring it down to people, to, you know, one person at a time. And that's really how you change the world. It's impacting one person at a time. It's not starting a global nonprofit or right. doing these massive. It's massive by events. being a teacher and speaking into a child's life. I mean, you're changing the trajectory of their life when you do that. If you speak hope and plant a seed, and you never know. You, if you help one of these kids, who in they're going to become, who will they become? Right. And then they've come from the slum. Right. Right. They could impact hundreds. Yeah thousands impact the whole slum. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really what, what is the response? And, um, I had this blog that was all about me, but it was doing well. Um, but it was an asset. I mean, I saw that as something like, and of course I'm writing all of this gut wrenching. Um, and a few weeks after I got home, I was writing every day. Just, I was so disgusted with my abundance and my waste and, how I, the choices I'd made as a believer. And I, so I'm processed. I'm a process writer. So I'm just like, I mean, it's hard to read stuff. And someone emailed me one day and they were like, it feels like you are about to give birth to something. Mm. And I remember reading that thinking, <laughs> I have you no weird. idea what that means. It's a weird, it was a weird a thing weird to comment. say. Um, but we, we were in labor, definitely mm. in labor, trying to figure out what do we do? What do we respond with? And of course, my husband was way ahead of me in the whole, like, let's give up everything we have and live this meaningful, purposeful life, which is why he wanted me to go to Kenya. Right. And then I came back and I was really on the same page with him. So we were like this dynamic duo of let's change our life. Let's do whatever. Okay. So I didn't realize how strategic it was. I didn't realize that Terrell had already kind of got to that place and he was waiting he was for you to get there. Definitely. Definitely. And a lot of women, moms ask me, wives, you know, because they have this experience, but their husbands aren't on the same page. And um, that is not my experience. I, um, I didn't talk my husband into starting Mercy House Global. He really, I mean, I think God had to send me 
to Africa and get me out of my comfort zone so that I could smell it, see it, experience it to get me back on the same page with my husband who was already willing to live an obedient life. And I mean, he would ask, why do we have six closets full of Christmas decorations? Why do we, you know, what do you need all of this stuff? You know, he was already really, I mean, I would get mad at him, Mm. which was a true sign that, you know, I was probably wrong. (laughs) Well, I can understand getting mad about Christmas decorations, you know. They are annoying. (laughs) They're really annoying. So I'm I'm with him all the way. One closet full only of Christmas decorations. Okay, so walk me through this. Walk us through this. Well, the first thing that we did, the very first thing, is I believe in the work of Compassion International. That's who took me on the trip. And my husband, that was what he asked. What what would make you... Because I was a wreck. Mm-hmm. I can't even... I, I still feel bad for my family who picked me up from the airport with flowers and gifts, and I refused to open them. Mm. Don't reward me for what I've just experienced. And my husband was like, who are you? <laughs> and oh, wow. what did you do with my wife? I mean, so I, I, it was a brutal couple of weeks because yeah. I didn't know... I mean, when you're your normal has been impacted right. by the world's normal. You don't know what to do with it. And so it was painful for so sure. So it was a metamorphosis. You were going through a metamorphosis. metamorphosis. Um, Good word, Justin. It was. That, I mean, we were, yes, caterpillar, <laughs> the whole yeah. butterfly thing. Um, but he asked me, what would make you feel like an immediate response? Mm. And I said, sponsoring compassion kids. And so we took the extra money. We were like, this is how much money without moving a lot of stuff around. And we sponsored 10 kids. Oh, wow. Two days after my trip. And we still, we have eight of those kids still. Two of them have graduated. But what's interesting is the next year I went back to Kenya and I have to bring this in because this is the business related piece that really was uh, in a way prophetic for the business that we would do. Um, you, you support a kid $38 a month, send them letters. Um, we have a sponsorship program through Mercy House for our teen mom graduates, same exact system. Um, so we had this kid in Kenya, because I knew I would return to Kenya, and uh, you can give a family gift each year to your family. And so um, we're doing the $38 a month, and we, gave, we always give our families, we try to give them $100 a year. And they can they get advice and help on what to do. And they buy, you know, buy a cow, replace their roof, oh, wow. meet a need. They can buy a cow for a hundred dollars. Yes. So I go back to Kenya the next like year. My cow was like 800 bucks. Yeah. But anyway, he lost money in his no, cow. No, I actually owned a cow. Really? I oh. think I was the, oh, Justin knows, I think I was the only person in the history of the world that I owned a cow while I was living in an apartment. <laughs> And then the guy that, that you bought the cow from, didn't he keep the cow? Yeah, he still got the cow or something like that. I don't know. I got to talk to him. I was like, hey, how, how's, uh, that sounds how's like a Bessie sitcom. doing? You know? Yeah, I know. It's funny. But sorry, I had to no. throw that in there. It's, so, it's, yeah, we I returned to Kenya with my family the next year. This was their first trip to Kenya. And we visited that one of those kids that we had sponsored. And we're in their home, and there's just nothing like that. I mean, it's like the most epic. Talk about giving your kids a worldview. Yeah. We're in her home, and she's trying to communicate with me, and she keeps pulling my arm, and I'm asking our translator, what is... He was like, she wants to show you something. She's dying to show you something. So we leave her house, and we walk. We're in the same slum that I'd been in a year before. We walk this crazy path, and we cross a road, and she points to this fruit stand. And... I said, what is this? And he said, this is the business you helped her start. Wow. 
hundred dollars oh, a year God. before. She was sending her kids to school and providing meals, food on the table. So that might have been because the most of the significant business. thing. It was this light bulb for me. It was for just Mercy House. it was huge. It was because we're dealing we have three maternity homes in Kenya that we started ten years ago. We're bringing girls out of trafficking, out of survival prostitution, out of very, very dangerous situations. How many babies? I think you guys just sold. We just had our 50th baby born. And we've brought That's in 52 amazing. girls um, in the last decade. But because I'm a problem solver by nature, that's how God created me, it, it drove me crazy the first few years doing this that we were getting to girls too late in a sense. And I wanted to go upstream and figure out what was polluting this water. Yeah. What was causing mothers to put their daughters into prostitution? And my answer was they needed dignified jobs all around the world. When you consider 40 million people today in, in modern day slavery, labor trafficking, sex trafficking. I mean, this is a real number happening right now. They're working, but it's undignified work. And so business will end poverty if we let it. Mm. That is the solution to poverty. So creating dignified jobs, replacing undignified work with dignified work became my heartbeat. And so I what was just, say, I, well, I would say, I think so many people like see the situation and they want to help, mm-hmm. but they feel like just throwing money at some big organization mm-hmm. and it just yeah. kind of gets lost yeah. in this vacuum. And then the question is, if you just throw money at something, that doesn't necessarily solve right. the problem right. because it can just be taken and then used. Well, look at, I mean, yeah, we've, I mean, our, this is maybe too political, but our, our country has literally ruined Haiti. We subsidized mm. their market so much. They have a crisis and earthquake. What do we do? We throw Use clothes at them. We literally right. gave them so much rice that it put all their rice farmers out of business. Right. You know, I mean, we create Talk- the book Toxic Charity. Yes. Gets I mean, it, our motive is probably great. You know, we right. want to help, but there's a great book when helping hurts, and that's what it yes. talks about. Yeah. Is yes. we we want to be really the savior, the white person it's from not the smart. It's West. not smart help. It's not smart help, and we ruin other people's opportunities at work. So you have to be a smart business person, right? Right. And our model, we empower indigenous people because, you know, they don't need Americans trying to solve their problems. We want to empower their solution. So what was the first product? I'm dying to know what the first product you partnered with to, to kind of sell. And maybe that's where we get into you talk about, okay, what Mercy House Global and it's mercyhouseglobal.org, by the way. I don't think we've mentioned the website yet if you want to, if you want to check it out. So what were, yeah, what, what was the, you know, I guess get into the first product mm-hmm. and uh, even just kind how of the formation evolved. of this. Yeah, how yeah. it's evolved since. So my background is not business. I mean, you know my background. I'm a writer. Um, and But I do believe that God uses who we are and how he made us, our gifts. That's why I think it's so critical that we're, you know, pouring into our kids and our, this new generation and fanning the flame of their gifts, because I believe that God uses everything for us to share. He gives us gifts for us to share them, Mm. not for us to keep. And so one of the gifts that he gave me was just the gift of creativity. And I have always been, even on my blog for years before Mercy House, I was, you know, I did do it yourself things, crafts, um, projects. And so 
I, lo- I love the way that it made me feel. I didn't even understand this, the psychology behind I'm having a bad day that I create something. And I yeah. feel better about my day, but that, there's a whole wow. psychology behind. It's a self-esteem building practice when you are feeling low and you get out of your head and use your hands. Hmm. There's a correlation between your brain and, and what you are creating. I did not know that. I so, had no idea that you could do like self, um, like therapy through really crafting. Can. So one of the things that we call that, we coined this term called the color of hope, because from the very first trip that, you know, we started our maternity homes six months after that initial trip to, with compassion, with indigenous staff that we work to empower, um, we started a skills program immediately with our first eight girls. And it was basically just, I knew that they were coming in traumatized and they would need skills, life skills, job skills, you know, anything that we could give them to help the transformation and prepare them for leaving. And so we started a little, I think it was an Etsy store, the first store, and we taught the girls, we had uh, eight products that we taught them on the, I mean, initially the first, it was a part of our very first program was to help them create stuff. Hmm. And we used paper because it was a easy, inexpensive resource. And so our first product was um, coasters that were made out of magazine paper that's rolled into tight, round coasters. And we still sell them today. And they've been a great product for us. But what was interesting was when the, you know, we returned home after we taught these ideas, we returned home and that first box of product I got from our maternity homes, I was, I mean, I wept like a baby, of course, in my garage. We had shelves and we started in our garage with our product side of things. And we had a box of coasters and I was so excited. And we started a store with a box of coasters. But what was interesting was they were all dull and dark colors blacks, Hmm. browns, grays. They were beautiful, but it looked like a fall collection, you know, because it was really dark. Yeah. And about three or four months later, I got another box of product and we got a box of coasters, but they were yellow and purple and orange. I mean, like a mixture of, and they were so bright. And I got on Skype and I talked to our director every day for two years at 1 p.m. before I got into Carline because I was helping this woman from a slum empowering her to run a business in Kenya. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> and you got to acknowledge that. That's, yeah, that's, that's cool. unbelievable. It was a discipline again. Um, yeah. And uh, I asked her, what changed? And she said, hope. The girls, as they began making stuff, and God began to transform them, literally the colors they chose for the products changed. And everything and, and wow. with our girls in the maternity home, we don't consider them an artisan group because this is part of a, an educational program. So we never place orders and say you have to make X amount of whatever they if make. They do it free will. Yes. And so whatever they make, they sign, we sell. It's a fundraiser more yeah. than a business. But the, it was powerful to see the difference between um, something that was hopeless and something that was full of hope. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, People began buying that, and really it was story-driven. Um, a lot of pity purchases, I'm sure, in there. Um, but all your products now, if you go to your store, are very, like, vibrant-colored and, mm-hmm. like, life-giving. Like, it could be the simplest thing. It could be, like, a spoon. Like, I bought a spoon from your store, and it was so, like, 
wonderfully colorful and like crafted and it, it like every day when I wake up and I stir my coffee it, it like gives me a little like yeah like that feeling it that little buzz coffee purpose yeah it does <laughs> it's, as it, if it needed purpose but yeah and even like Ryan's opening the box for the August um, gifts and there's like this vibrant like lemony lemon print um, looks like a lunch bag lunch bag yeah and like yeah, yeah the, I mean this beautiful I mean this very, beautiful very well made uh, wooden spoon. And then I believe this is a, yeah, it's this uh, metal kind of lemonade straw. And so this is the, I, I mean, this is a practical. I recognize these straws. <laughs> our, our youth our youth theater group comes in and volunteers like once in a, once in a month usually. And they are putting together these, um, yep. packaging these straws, these lemonade straws that are but, so. But this is something so. like the Fair Trade Friday box, and you can get it at mercyhouseglobal.org. But it's a subscription service. Yes. Where it's like uh, uh, you pay, uh, how much is it? It's, I, yeah, We like, do it, but I forget how much. Like $34 it, like about 30, a yeah. month, and you get. Um, I mean, you get products mm-hmm. made by yeah. these women auto delivered to you every month. Yeah, so this was our solution to five years ago really this wrestling with God, how do we get ahead of the problem? Because we have had 52 girls rescued, but we have limited bed space. And we sort of see them kind of like our disciples in a way where we're pouring in to the this limited amount of girls and then they're going into their communities and transforming their communities after their own transformation. But how do we reach more than this limited amount. And, and so that really became this huge question for me. And five years ago, we answered that question by starting fair trade Friday. So it's a monthly subscription club. We have four different club options from the lowest price, about $11 a month, earring of the month to a quarterly box. It's all handmade. I mean, from shoes to bag leather bags, that's about $120 a quarter. So there's all these different options. We have about 4,000 club members in North America. We pack all those boxes through volunteers. Four thousand orders per month that come out of your out of your yes. your store. Yes, uh, for our subscription clubs, we have two retail stores. Also, right, we do about one hundred and fifty to two hundred events a year where we send fair trade product to churches and oh, wow. different markets, um, home parties as a way to just any way you can sell product. We mm. have wholesale lines that with about one hundred and thirty stores in the U.S. that carry our product. Um, oh, that's incredible. Groups. Interesting. So any way we can sell product, we do, because we believe that God has called us to exchange undignified work for dignified work. And so, and but we are in the public square, so we try to make our products very high quality and trendy. So they're following trends that, because we're competing with other Sure. Secular businesses. Um, well, and even the fair trade thing is something secular businesses are doing all day, whether it's yes, coffee or yes. clothing. Really, the world should do fair right. trade. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, how do you? How do you? This is like a really good um, point to ask. How do you delineate between the business that, that brings revenue uh, for your family, and then the business that is strictly goes out to nonprofit causes or to your, um, you know, your homes in Kenya like how do you do that how do you figure out the line that is a good question um I think it's grown over time to be what it is today obviously we didn't start we started with 80 fair trade Friday members right five years ago um but our goal is to return as much money as possible to those who need it most I mean the 
you know, we try to live a life of generosity. So do you live off of your blog and off of your books and then a little bit comes in from Mercy House? Is that how you kind of view it? Um, in the beginning, yes, we did. Um, and five years ago, so Mercy House is about 10 years old. So for the first five years, no one took a salary. We didn't have any paid. Um, That's amazing. We had a store like a mom who would come in and pack orders and she made an hour. But everybody wage. was volunteer. Everybody for was volunteer pretty much for five, five years. years. And then, um, we, when we started fair trade Friday, it exploded our ministry. Right. Because, and, and I so will you had to say hire actual staff to run it. Yes. Cause it wouldn't be fair to them to not. Well, and you're getting into a public square where you're, competing and, and your pity purchases are long gone and right. you don't want those anyway because they're right. not sustainable. It has to be a competitive business. It has to be a competitive business. And so, um, we, my husband quit his corporate America job and became our CEO. And he took a pay cut to uh, yes, do that. He a did. pretty big pay cut, right? He did. And he, um, we tried to wait for the right moment to do that so that he could, you know, help our family for a year so that we weren't totally dependent on, because it was a, yeah. it was another big jump for us, right. um, personally. And then I started writing more books and that was my salary until mm. this past January. And I actually officially became a paid employee and that was more, uh, board driven. Yeah. Well, um, that's great. And, and they just felt like it, we were at that point where it almost hurt us for me not to take an income. Um, right. If you're putting all your time into blogging yes. and writing books, then you're not putting the time into Mercy House. Right. And you're yeah. the you're the face of Mercy House. So yes. you really do need to put time into it. Yes. It's a, still a story driven, mostly family run. Um, but we have a 10 year exit plan for our family. Hmm. And um, because we want it to last past us, we want it to to go past us. But they wanted me to stay for another 10 years. And so they signed, <laughs> signed you to a 10 year deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they were like, you know, for everyone else, like donors and different people, they want me to still be a part of it for 10 years. Yes. Are and people so, giving 10 year gifts to your company or to your organization? No, I mean, but they're, but they want, they're trying to lock you in yeah. now before free agency goes crazy. Yeah. And, or and who knows <laughs> where it's going to grow or go to. Um, because we're not done yeah. and we well, have, and big they, they said sign for 10 years, but you had to also agree to that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you, it wasn't you, really you, like a legal sign. I mean, it was a, um, you know, we're in our late forties and, right. um, and so in our late fifties, we <laughs> want to be passing the baton. Yes. Essentially. Yes. But we want to set it up where it will last past us. That's a, a big important part. So here's the question I've been dying to ask you because I read, I read the book grateful kids in an entitled titled world. And it really, um, raising grateful kids in an entitled world. It really changed my perspective because I, I run a small business and I employ my own kids and it is a family business. And I, I, I'm interested to figure out, how do you incorporate your kids in in Mercy House? Like, what are their roles, and how do you keep from paying them too much or too little? And mm -hmm. like, what's the volunteer side of what they do? And like, how do you navigate that? Um, it's a it's complicated. I yeah. think that um, my kids didn't choose this dream, hmm. and because I, my husband and I weren't paid for the first five years, it was really service for our family. Um, 
and it was an important part of our lives. But I, I think what's there's a fine line between what you're doing as a volunteer and what you're doing as an employee. My my family is not employed. My kids are not employed at Mercy House. So they currently. only volunteer. So they're, they're only volunteers. Oh, wow. Well, that makes it easy. It does. <laughs> right. Our daughter, our oldest daughter who's at college, um, she was an associate in our store her senior year for about six months. And um, it was really hard because uh, mom and dad is boss. and Even that six months, it's hard to work with family. It really is hard. And I th- what was funny was I, I think we didn't appreciate each other. Like I would ask her to do things maybe that I wouldn't ask other people to do. Right, or be tougher on her yes. than you were on other staff Because members. it's your, you know, you feel like you can. Yeah. And then she didn't, ha- it was her first job, and so she had no reference and so yeah. I remember the day yeah. she walked in and she was like, I want a real job. I don't want to work for y'all anymore. And we were like, okay, great. Go find a real job. I've heard this from every <laughs> small business owner I've ever talked to. They say the ones that are successful at this, they require their kids to have an outside job yes. before they yes. work for the family yes. business. So what happened was she, she's an artist and if she's ever created art or things that we've used, we have you know, like contract paid a fair wage for the piece yeah, that we use. Gotcha. But as an ongoing employee, um, contract labor could be easier. Yes. I mean, that's actually a good advice for anybody out there that wants to pay their kids and maybe not, they can't get a job outside the home. Like we actually employ our, our younger teens who would not be eligible to work a regular job because you have to be a certain age, but yeah. there, there are laws that allow, uh, small business owners to employ their own kids mm-hmm. and take advantage of quite a few tax benefits. Um, I think it's up to $6,000 a year. They don't have to pay any social security. Yeah. They don't, you don't have to pay any taxes on it and they don't have to pay, pay social security on it. And it can go into an IRA or a, um, Justin's been trying to get me to do this for like a year and a half, and I've just stubbornly resisted. But I think at some point I'm going to have to realize it's it's probably a good idea. So we put all our, they, they work for the business and even the even the 13 year old and they they get a fair wage to do it and we put the money into their retirement um slash college fund it's mm, like a yeah, roth ira yeah. so there's like some great advantages to all that but even in doing that i'm realizing well i'm kind of probably paying them too much because they're not going to make ten dollars an hour anywhere else. anywhere else well, and that's the thing that we noticed right away was just our our kids need perspective because mm. they only know what they know and i feel like we've given our kids a great global view of the world but when it comes to jobs and being compensated our daughter was like i'm you know peace out i want a real job and yeah. went and got a job at the mall at anthropology making you know probably two dollars more an hour than she made for us and she um after doing that for six months she came back i mean i yeah. you know she it helped her see the benefit it's and like the prodigal son scenario exactly. within the job realm. Yeah. She was like, you guys treat your employees way better. It's more family friendly. You're more flexible. Um, so anthropology is not a good place to work. <laughs> That's what I think we've learned from today's podcast. Uh, oh, no. That's, that's brilliant. That is brilliant, Justin. Thank I cannot you share so this much. podcast. Now. I wasn't listening very no. well, if that's my takeaway. Yeah. Um, any any store, I think you just get a perspective. It could be she, any but store. What it's was true. interesting was she 
came back and helped our store by saying, this is what they do in their dressing room and this is how they... So they had some good stuff too. Yes. They, they had some good systems yes. in place. Definitely, because they're a huge corporation. And so we took the advice that she yeah. gave us, but right before she went to college, she came in and and started working for us again and was a totally different employee because she had something to compare it to. Yeah, good. Yeah. That's good advice um, for people out there listening. Yeah, so, but I think the important thing, especially if it's ministry-related, is making service a part of everyday life. And my kids have become people who enjoy serving because it's a normal part of our life. It's something that we, on a regular basis, you know, every week, like, who are we serving this week? What are we doing? Um, and I think they will end up choosing careers that are service-related or have service opportunities because volunteering has been such a core part right. of their childhood. Volunteering and missions are contagious. Like once you've exposed, they are. Your, once you've exposed your kids to volunteering and missions. But we don't make our kids do any of that. Yeah. You know, we're at that point where we don't make them serve. We don't make them volunteer. We but don't you make did them when they were younger. Us. When they were younger, it was sort of like, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But as they, once they started driving and, you know, our son works at Chick-fil-A, you know, and. Right. But he still volunteers every single week because it's a core part of who he is. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, really at this point, I feel like I want to find out, you know, or let our listeners know really kind of what are some practical ways they can get involved with Mercy House Global. What can they What can they do in terms of uh, financial support, or maybe talk about maybe the Fair Trade Friday box a little bit more? But also, you have a really cool event coming up in November, I believe, yes. called Home for the Holidays. So maybe talk about that as well as any other ways they can practically, whether it's whether it's service or financial or both, you know how they how they can really invest mm-hmm. in Mercy House Global. Because I mean. What this, I, I've just had a blast, by the way, in this interview. This has been, it's been so incredible, so eye-opening. Um, and I know, I think a, a lot of people listening are probably feeling the same way. Okay, like I'm kind of like yeah. you, I'm kind of like ready what to do, I do something. Next? I, yeah. I, I didn't get to visit the slum, but mm-hmm. here I am. Yeah, I've got resources. You know, what, what's the best way I can use those resources to, to help mm-hmm. those people? Well, I, it's easier than we think it is. And I think that's been sort of the beauty of this journey that I've been on um, because this isn't my background and I've kind of stumbled into this life. Um, But I think the way we shop, you know, we're a consumer country. Um, We don't manufacture a whole lot anymore. Um, And we consume. So we are buying um, gifts and things for ourselves and things for our home constantly. Right. It's just, part of the, the nature of it. And when I first returned from Kenya, I remember for a solid year, I didn't want to buy anything because I had bought too much. And I was just trying to figure out this new normal. And yeah. I remember my husband was like, you don't want to stop buying. You just want to buy right. Okay. And we call it redeemed consumerism. Because, wow, I love that. Yeah, we're going to... I mean, he's like, you're never going to convince Americans not to shop. Like, yeah. You know, get off. Your husband that. is a it's wise against... man. I've, we've learned through yeah. this whole thing. <laughs> yes, Carol is, is a very wise. wise individual. And he said, you know, we just want people to shop differently. Mm. And so, really, one of the main things that um, we do is educate consumers. We feel like that's a huge 
uh, responsibility of ours. And when you shop at Mercy House, you're not only providing a job by the, for, for the artisan who made what you're buying, the profit from that item is supporting the maternity centers in Kenya. So it's just full circle, like 100% of your money is really helping that is people. That's so wow. But we're going to buy. And so how do we buy things that don't hurt people? And what we don't like to think about is a lot of what we buy, especially at certain stores, and it's not yeah, hard like to Walmart. figure this out. Walmart's a, a no-no. Um, but what we're buying is either you know, providing dignity and hope for people or it's doing the exact opposite. It is endangering and enslaving people. And there's some middle ground there too. There's, it's not all, it's all not, products it's, from Walmart are enslaving people, right. but some of them are. Yes. So you have to be educated. Yes. And so our goal is to educate consumers. And one of the things we've tried to make it easy for people is any gift you need in your life, Mother's Day, Father's Day, graduation, birthday, we have a solution. Mm. And so our subscription clubs only make that easier because we're telling you what we think you need, different right. th are, seasons in your life, gifts. These are great and gifts they make great give. gifts. And so they're sort of themed um, and, and seasonally appropriate um, so that we're, we're trying to take the guesswork out for you. We have not only we're following trends in the market, we're making sure it's high quality. We're making sure that um, I mean, this bag right here, this lemon bag, I mean, the story is just, it's incredible. The actual print, the lemon print, was done by one of our teen moms in Kenya at an art camp. And then nine hands touched this bag from the leopard colony that wove the fabric out of cotton wow. to the, the person who... What? Yeah. Did you just say leper <laughs> yes. colony? Yes. That wove the cotton. In India. Wow. Unbelievable. The block print that the artisan carved the lemon out of the piece of wood to the stamper, the person who stamped it, all the different colors. Six people worked on it. Nine people. Oh, nine bag. people. Wow. Nine, I mean, then you've got your, your seamstress, your packager, your quality control. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. And if we go to Walmart and buy a lunch bag, we have no idea who made it. We're yeah. we're like playing shopping roulette. It could have hurt someone, cause. maybe. It's and it's not not so, so question: Can they uh, can they go to like one of your retail stores? Yes. And these lunch bags will be here. Or yeah. How, how much of the inventory is like consistent versus? I'm sure there's a lot of probably yeah. uh, ebb and stuff. flow and seasonal stuff. Yes. So our subscription clubs. One of the things that we do is we try to keep people in the club because we're planning and purchasing products six months out. So we're providing jobs. It's about a six-month um, process right. for them to make a quantity um, and then get that to us. And so we're projecting what we think we're going to need in six months. So if people cancel, we have to replace those cancellations. Um, so we try to make the product in the box exclusive. Like if you're not a club member... You can't, you get, can't the get it in the store. Yes, you cannot get it in the gotcha. store. Can they go in the store? We have totally stuff? different product. Can they buy stuff online? Do you have an online? Yes, we have an online store, mercyhouseglobal.org, right. um, and so we have the retail stores, subscription clubs, and then an online store. So the best way for people to help is to is to get on your website and decide what level they want to be involved because they can exactly. they can buy a subscription kit at different price points. Right. They can also directly sponsor a. 
a teen graduate. A teen yes. graduate. It's $21 a month. You get a few is, letters, pictures a year. Oh, yeah. That's can a no-brainer. Them letters. That's a no-brainer yes. right there. And it's that great is. to teach your kids about Everyone listening can sponsor at least one of those Absolutely. one of those girls. Yes. I need to do that. I need to get I do, too. This. I don't sponsor one of those girls. And neither do you. Justin, why don't you sponsor one of those I girls? I needed this How could as you? a reminder. How? <laughs> I needed today as a reminder. Oh, wait. I need to also. Okay. Sure. And sure. then they, the big event coming up, Home for the Holidays, if they go on your website and join your mailing list, they can... <laughs> There'll be information yes, about yes. that. Yes, Home for the Holidays is being produced by Lifeway. It is a totally unique and new event for us. This is our first year to do it. It might be our last. I don't know. It's been a ton of work, but we're excited about the potential. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to this desire to educate consumers. That's really why we're doing it. It also will raise money to set our budgets in Kenya, which are about a half million dollars a year. Because This is your annual fundraiser, It right? is our annual fundraiser. We've done a local gala for the last five years. And at the last one, I just really felt like we needed to do something that included more people outside of our local population. And so on November 2nd, you can host a watch party in your home. And it's basically will be like a two-hour for lack of better words, television program that will have um, stories behind the product and we'll have some influencers like Ann Voskamp and um, different people talking about the the system and the, our director from Kenya will actually be here talking about the, the journey of the product from the maker to the market. And what we really want to do is make fair trade product a um a reality in homes across america mm-hmm. where it's it's a this is a platform to jump into this conversation together that i didn't know that i could have items that helped people that i would give as christmas gifts and instead of buying it from a place that i i don't know if people are being harmed or not um and, you know, it doesn't take a lot. I, I'm a big documentary watcher. Mm-hmm. And it many, many brands from Nike to, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we are wearing and that we are consuming are hurting people. This needs to be a documentary. So if there's anybody out there that's a documentarian, yeah. we'd love, I mean, wouldn't you love <laughs> to have a documentary oh, yeah, made about the story? Well, so, uh, so, yeah, uh, no so question. Compelling. No question. So yeah. we have to wrap it up because we're out of time. But this has been... Really no, yeah, amazing uh, to to get dig deeper into Mercy House and your your story and uh, all the different ways that God's um, He's used um, all the gifts and talents that you were given and the things you developed over time for His purposes. And I love that that His vision is always way bigger than our vision. So mm-hmm. you go to Kenya and you're like, "How can I help people in this slum?" And He's like, "We're going to help those people, and then we're going to help everybody else, including as well. me." Yeah, I feel like I've been <laughs> helped more than. Uh, because what I lacked 10 years ago, I have an abundance of, and that's joy and purpose. Mm. And so it, it, I, that has, and, and that's Raising Grateful Kids. That whole book was how that has spilled over into my family and my parenting. And I mean, my entire life is different because of it. So mercyhouseglobal.org is where they can sign up for the, uh, the subscription box. They can sign up for the Home for the Holidays. They can shop your online store. Yes. They can find your retail locations there yes. as well. Any plans in the works for location three, <laughs> four, anything? 
Or um, if you can say, if yeah. you can share, but I'm nosy by nature <laughs> and I ask awkward questions a lot to make people feel uncomfortable. That's so not an awkward I, question. No, so that's I, good. <laughs> she can just we say no. are in the process of restructuring some of our um, business side of things so that we can grow and open more stores. Because we need like point. 8 million. <laughs> Merc- not we don't need any more you Starbucks, need, need yeah. especially in North Houston. Yeah. We do yeah. not need any more Starbucks. We definitely there's need a lot more of Toys R, Mercy Toys R Us is available. If you ever yeah, <laughs> yeah, just find the, find those yeah. parking find lots where there used to be what looks like about the size of a Toys R Us <laughs> store, and hmm, uh, but no, so that's fabulous. Um, so. What would there? What would be any parting words? You know, this is big tech, small biz. It's about small business owners in Texas. What would be the the a parting word that you would want to give to a small business owner, mm-hmm. or a Christian small business owner, someone who's looking to become a Christian small business, uh, become but become a small business owner, um, or somebody that's a Christian that owns a business that hasn't figured out how to weave their faith into mm-hmm. their business. That's yeah. Probably another way I think that's it. a really important question because I think whatever our hands are doing, it should incorporate not a give back philosophy. I actually don't like that term <clears throat> because God did not ask us to give back. He asked us to give all of it to mm-hmm. him. And, and that's what I did 10 years ago with my small business, which was my blog. Um, before I went on that trip, I laid it on the altar and asked God to use it for his glory. And he has taken that and that's what he's done with it. And it really has so little to do with me. And so that's what I would encourage small business owners or people who dream of opening a business to, from the beginning, lay it on the altar and give it to God because he can be glorified through our efforts and it can support our family and provide for our needs. Yes. But he has not called us to give back and give a portion. He wants all of it. Mm. He wants everything that we have, and he wants to use what he's given us for his glory. And in doing that, we're the ones that benefit. You know, we think in our, especially in our economy mindset, that we're going to have less if we share what we've been given, right? Especially numbers, you write it down on paper. If I give it all away, I'm not going to have anything left. Right. But kingdom math is totally different. Well, I mean, Jesus said, give, and it shall be given unto you. Shaken down, pouring over, pressed Multiply. over. Multiply. Yeah. I mean, he gives us more. And that doesn't even just mean money. It means, right. like, joy. It yes. means, like, purpose, yes. which is so much more valuable. Yes. <laughs> Everything tenfold. And so um, that that would be my word for you well, is share what you've been given. That's beautiful. Good. That's beautiful. Well, Kristen... Uh, this has been a blast. It's been a joy. It's been encouraging. It's been challenging. So thank you for being our very first guest here on Big yeah. Tech Small Biz. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, if you guys would like to get a hold of us, uh, Justin and I, you can email us, bigtechs at cgmradio.com, bigtechs at cgmradio.com. And, of course, please visit mercyhouseglobal.org. Sign up for a subscription box. Uh, sponsor a girl or two or 10 or 20 or 100 um, and uh, really uh, look into uh, investing and sponsoring. It is absolutely worth it. So thanks again to Kristen for being with us and we will see you guys again very soon.